Good morning. My name is Pastor Ransom Ken. I'm so thankful you've joined us this morning on our streaming service for Grace Presbyterian Church here in Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, this morning we are starting a brand new series on the Trinity. The Trinity. It's a theological series. Uh, the Trinity uh, is an orthodox doctrine of the Christian faith. What that means is that from a long time ago, uh, the truth of the Trinity was established for those who considered themselves Christians. So uh, if you are a Christian, uh, an, an orthodox doctrine is something that has been established as right and true for you to believe. So uh, a simple definition of what the Trinity might be, I'm going to give a brief introduction, but the, the simple definition here is that we believe in one God, and within that one God, he dwells in three distinct Persons, not separate, but distinct. We refer to them as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Each person within that Trinity is fully God. They are equal in power, equal in importance, and as the uh, the uh, creeds go, they are equal in substance. So that that is the general boundaries that are set for us in our in our belief in who God is as a Trinitarian being. Now, like most like many theological concepts, we are given these boundaries so we know that within those set uh, definitions, we, we are dwelling in right belief, but we, we are left without a very clear, concise, pinpointed, focused definition. But what these boundaries give us are uh, areas where we know if we travel outside of that, uh, we run into what we'd refer to as unorthodoxy or heresy. Let me give you an example. Uh, some of you may be familiar with uh, a Hollywood personality named Bill Maher. Bill Maher is what I would refer to as a militant agnostic, uh, possibly an atheist. Uh, he has a talk show on one of the cable stations, HBO or something like that. Uh, but several years ago, uh, Bill uh, put together a, uh, a documentary called Religious. Religious. Uh, the basic premise of this documentary was that he was going to research out and, ex- and express to people how ridiculous, hence religious, it is to believe in any kind of faith, specifically Christianity. Now, in this film, he ended up going to, uh, you can't make this up, he went to a Christian theme park in Orlando called the Holy Land Experience, and while he was at the Holy Land Experience, he sat down with the man who, much like a, a character plays Mickey Mouse at Disneyland, uh, this man played Jesus at the Holy Land Experience. So Bill sat down with this person, and uh, part of the interview he had, it, he confronted this man dressed up as Jesus on the doctrine of the Trinity. He said, how could you believe something like that? How, how could you believe something that doesn't make any sense? And so the man dressed up as Jesus responded this way. He said, well, that, you know what? Actually, it is easy to understand. Let me explain it to you. And he, he used the illustration of, of the states of matter. He said, water can exist in both, in all, all three, solid, gas, and liquid. So just like water can be water, ice or steam, so God can exist in three different states. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Uh, What's interesting about this documentary is that I was expecting Bill to really eat this guy for lunch, but that explanation uh, of the Trinity that came from this gentleman actually kind of stumped Bill. He thought, well, that's an interesting scientific way of looking at it, and, and he resonated with the man. There's one major problem with that explanation. <laughs> and so though, I'm sure some of you stop to write down, ooh, water, ice, steam. I'm going to ask you to stop writing it down. Come back to me. Come back. Um, though there's one major problem with water, ice, steam as d- describing the Trinity. It's a heresy. It's not 
correct. What you are describing there by using water, ice, steam, or something like that, you're saying that God is one God, and at different times he dwells in a different role. He's not three persons in one. God is one who then fills different roles at different times. If you remember during the children's sermon, I referred to Matthew 3 and kind of the comical situation that would have to exist if, if this, this heresy called modalism, were true. Jesus, God in the flesh, would be there being baptized. God then would then have to rush up to heaven and, and speak down and send, come down as, as like a dove to land on himself, Jesus. And so what this definition of one God in three persons, distinct, but each one being equally God, equal in power, importance, and substance, helps us to understand it's not necessarily easy to understand, but we know what isn't true. The Trinitarian heresies are, are still alive today. Modalism, as I just talked about, uh, are somewhat common in some Pentecostal denominations of the Christian faith. Uh, hence, this man at, at uh, the Holy Land Experience, this man playing Jesus, where that probably came from. Uh, but another common heresy today is Arianism or adoptionism. They're similar. Uh, Jehovah's Witness and Mormons believe that Jesus was, a, was created by God. He's not co-equal with God. He is a created being. Uh, and so, listen, the Scripture gives us enough information. This is why we're going through this series. The Scripture gives us enough information to have a meaningful, I would say life-changing view of God the three-in-one. Our understanding of God in this Trinitarian setup is going to do a few things. It's going to birth a deeper faith in us. As we understand God and who He is in His Trinitarian form, we'll understand better who He is. And as we understand better who He is and affirm that, we can understand better who God is, how He interacts with us in love, how He interacts with the world. And so that's why we're going through this series, is to gain that better knowledge of, of who God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are, how they interact, interact with one another, and how we are brought into that trinity through Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross. If you want more information, I really recommend this book, uh, Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. It's a fantastic read. It's one of the resources that I used in preparation for this series. But again, if you would like more information, even as we go through this series, I'd highly recommend this book. We're going to start this morning, uh, where I think we all who are familiar with the Trinity would expect us to, we're going to start with God the Father. And so that brings me to our scripture passage that we'll study. I'll be reading to you from John 17, verses 1 through 5. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. So please follow along as I read to you these few verses. These verses come at the end of what is called the Farewell Discourse. Jesus has been uh, visiting with his disciples just before he goes to the cross, and he re really lays out a lot of important information about who he is, what's going to happen next, what he has been sent to do. And so it's in this uh, farewell discourse that we'll be looking at uh, through this series. And so here in John 17 is the beginning of what is referred to as the high priestly prayer. Jesus prays for his disciples at the end. And so please follow along with me here starting in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 
I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence, in your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. God the Father, I pray to you in the name of God the Son, and I ask that you send God the Holy Spirit this morning into our hearts. May we feel his presence. May we we know that uh, he is present with us, enlightening us to your word. Convict us of the sins in our lives. Convict us of the promises you make to us. Convict us of of your love that you have for us as our Father this morning. I pray that you would help me to uh, deliver the words that you would have me to deliver, and that you would be with us as we worship you this morning through listening and learning from your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So to begin uh, our discussion on God the Father, we have to recognize something. So you ready for this? If you are currently breathing, you are alive as a human being, or I guess if you were ever alive as a human being, and if you're listening now and you are no longer alive, that's all convoluted. I don't want to get there. But anyway, if you are alive right now, you have breath going in and out of your lungs, you have an earthly father. Big stuff there, Rance. Interesting stuff. Mind-blowing. Listen, we need to talk about that. We need to talk about the fact that every single human has a fatherly experience. Some of us had good dads. Some of us had good fatherly experiences. Some of us had terrible fatherly experiences. But here's the reality. None of us, no matter what our experience has been, had a perfect experience with our fathers. And all of us had, in some way, a broken experience with our fathers. That's the reality. And we have to talk about this because what is our tendency? Our tendency is to take our earthly fatherly experience, whether as being a father or having a father, and to take that experience and apply it to God and his fatherliness, you see. The reality is this. The fatherly experience we've had, the experience we've had with our biological, relational, adopted, whatever, legal father is either a shadow of what God's fatherliness is like or an apparition, a nasty ghost figure of what God's fatherliness is like. God is the perfect father. And so we have to first address this. We ought to take our concept of fatherhood from God's fatherhood, his perfect fatherliness, and apply it to our earthly relationships. But our tendency is to take all those experiences, good and bad, and to apply it as we talk about God as Father. And I want to say this morning, we should not reverse that. We should not take our earthly experiences and then try to fit God into those. Meaning, if my father was a good dad, then God is the same, a good dad in the same way. Even good dads are broken. Or if my dad was a terrible dad, I take that terrible experience and I look at God as if he is the same as that terrible dad. That is not how it ought to be. God is the perfect father, and all earthly fathers are compared to, uh, take their um, definition of the similarities of fatherhood from God. God didn't show up and reveal himself and see, oh, humans have this thing called a father. I'll use that to describe myself to them. No, God has been, and we'll see in a moment, eternally a father. And we get our conception, we should get our conception of fatherhood from that. 
And so it's, that's why it's so important to talk about that at first, because the first thing we're going to learn from John 17, the thing that most excited me from studying this passage this week, I'm excited to share this morning, is that God has a primary identity. God has a primary identity. Now, we have a tendency to make God's identity uh, primary, but we choose these alternative identities. Bear with me on this. We have a tendency to look at God as creator, and why not? The first thing we learn about God as we read the Bible in Genesis is that he created. We look sometimes at God as a provider, a caregiver. We look at God sometimes as Lord or King or ruler. We look at God as a God of love at times. And all of us have tendencies, the whole world has tendencies to ascribe some of these things as God's primary identity. But what do we learn from John 17.1? What does Jesus refer to God as? Father, pater is the word. And so we see here in Genesis 17.1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, not creator, not king, not ruler, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son might glorify you. This word Father, again, this is why it's so important for us to understand that there's this eternal definition of Father that informs earthly fatherhood. We can't reverse it. This, this word Father here denotes a close, intimate relationship, as the word Son does here in this verse as well. Jesus was not created. We already talked about this. We'll talk more about it next week. But Jesus was not uh, the biological descendant of God. No, when he calls God Father, and Father, and God the Father refers to him as his Son, as he does in Matthew 3, it's not a biological or a legal reference. It is a reference to the eternal, intimate closeness of these two distinct persons within the Trinity. It's an extremely close relationship. And so this is where the reversal comparison messes us up. If we look at this relationship between God the Father and God the Son as biological, uh, it, 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 it can't happen that way. It's not how Jesus came to be. If we look at it as only emotional, we, we miss out on things. If we look at it as legal, like it's an adoption, we end up in a place that we should not end up. And so if we try to explain the father and son relationship between Jesus and God in any of these terms, where do we end up? We end up with a theologically flat tire. We can't go anywhere. We are kept in a place that is not accurate. And so uh, when we look at God, as we understand the Trinity, the, found, the foundational principle we have to understand is that God's primary identity from eternity is Father. God is primarily and eternally God the Father. And so rather than looking at God in his creative power or his rule and authority or looking at him in his love uh, as things that, that are his primary things, these, these attributes, these things that God is, God is creator, God is the ruler, God is a God of love, he is the provider and caregiver for all of humanity and his children but they aren't his primary identity. They are secondary, and they are seated in and grow out of what? His eternal primary identity as God the Father. We can see this as we progress through this passage because what Jesus prays to God reveals that it's in that fatherly relationship, it's in that fatherly identity from which uh, all these other things happen. Let's keep moving on through the passage. When we understand God accurately as the Father, we can see as Jesus prays that these identities that he, he gives to God or these attributes that he attributes to God, 
uh, flow from his identity as a father. So take a look with me at verse 2. Jesus has identified God as father primarily and first in his prayer, and then he moves to this. And since you have given him authority, so remember, Jesus is praying kind of in the third person. He is the him. He is the son. And so in a sense, what he's saying is, since you have given me authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given. Now, let's follow this along logically. There is authority. That's what's being said here. There is authority. There is rule. There is kingship. So uh, where does it belong? It belongs to God. God is the authority, but he is not the authority alone or even primarily. The the authority belongs to God the Father. What is it authority over? All flesh. That means he he has authority over every human being. And, And how does he enact it? How does God bring about his authority through the Son? He has given it to Jesus Christ. So God rules, yes. God is king, yes. God is Lord, but he accomplishes it through his fatherly nature. His lordship is enveloped by his fatherliness. It is is ruled almost in his fatherliness. Because God is father, he has that authority in a certain way. He executes his authority in a certain way. And so what's interesting here is he gives Jesus this authority, Jesus the Son, for a specific purpose. Look at the second part of verse 2. To give eternal life to all whom you have given. Jesus, it's important to understand that Jesus has a duty when he comes to earth. He didn't just come to earth to check it out, see how it is. Oh, that's what it's like being a human. No, he came for a specific purpose. Jesus had a duty. What was that duty? To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. God gave Jesus a mission. He says, I have children in this world, and it is your mission to go and gather them in. We can see that from John 1. When John talks about Jesus being the word from eternity, he was God the Son from eternity, and he came, he became flesh and came to earth. Why did he do that? To give us the right to become sons and daughters of God. That is the duty, that is the mission of Jesus Christ, to go get the children of God. You see how this can only happen if God is primarily a father. The duty wasn't subdue the world. The duty wasn't create again. No, the duty was go and find my children. Go and give eternal life to all those whom I have given to you. It begs the question, well, what is eternal life? I'm so glad you asked. Let's look at verse 3. And this is eternal life. Well, there you go. They, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Understand even this, this word know, it's a relational word. This is not about simply head knowledge. It's not about even primarily obedience or something like that. No, what is eternal life? It's a relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. So even this salvation, this this eternal life that Jesus is bringing is relational. You see, God revealed his true identity through Jesus Christ. You can look at the Old Testament, and and in the Old Testament, there are hints at the Trinitarian nature of God, that there is three in one, but it's not clear. One uh, theologian, uh, B.B. Warfield, said, the Old Testament is is as if it's a chamber richly furnished, but dimly lit. So there are these complexities and, and beautiful, ornate pieces of furniture in this room And then what did Jesus do? He came and he flicked on the light. Through Jesus Christ, we find out 
the clarity, the truth of the Trinity. One of the factors that can allow you to uh, see that this is definitely true, if you look at the words that Jesus used, the, the first two most used words of Jesus are the word one and the word father. Jesus' message was this. This is why he was crucified. I am one with the father. Jesus' message was a a full revelation of the Trinitarian doctrine of God. And so through Jesus Christ, we get the idea, we get the orthodox doctrine of God is three in one. And so that is why in order to know God, to have that eternal life, you must also know Jesus Christ. The fullness of God was not just revealed by Jesus, it was revealed in Jesus. And you can see this Earlier in this farewell discourse, Jesus is kind of laying out a summary of his ministry and teaching to the disciples. They've been with him all the time over his three years. And he says to them at one point, listen, if you have known me, you have also known the Father. And Philip, as we say here in the South, bless his heart. What does he do? He says, Jesus, he exclaims it, Jesus, show us the Father. Show him to us. And what is Jesus' response? He says, listen, Have you not been with me long enough? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus is one with God. He is distinct, but he is one with God in that relationship. And so because Jesus is one, because Jesus is the one in whom God is revealed, we can't approach God through any other means. We can't be good enough. We can't go to other religions. We can't can't hope that God will take us in our sincerity. No, we must come to him through Jesus Christ. We cannot find God through any other activity other than believing in faith in the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And so because of that, we can only know God through what? Through Christmas, Good Friday, Easter, and Pentecost. God comes to us. God is with us through his Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And what I want us to make sure we pause for a moment and really take in. We can really get sidetracked by all this theology. Theology is fascinating to some of us. To me, it is. But we can miss a simple truth here. We can miss a simple truth that's stated very clearly in verse 3. Understand this. Knowing God, knowing God relationally, knowing Jesus Christ relationally is what? It is eternal life. That's what eternal life is, is knowing them. It's not how we get eternal life. It is eternal life. You see, we have made the word life so scientific and sterile. We we talk about it in a scientific way, but this word life that is here in verse 3, it's all these things. It refers to healthiness, happiness, exuberance, energy, vitality. So it's this, this satisfactory kind of fulfillment filling idea of vitality. And how long does it last? For eternity. It continues forever indefinitely. So think about this. Ultimate eternal fulfillment. I feel like we should be filming this. I feel like every human being has this question. Well, how do I find fulfillment in my life? How do I find satisfaction in my life? And the answer is right here in John 17, verse 3. The answer to ultimate eternal fulfillment is knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ. That's the answer. Having a relationship with God the Father through God the Son. There are ramifications to this for both the church and for those who don't believe. Let's start with the brothers and the sisters. You see, God as our Father 
is the source for our vitality. He is the source. So how do we increase the the healthiness, happiness, exuberance, energy, vitality in our lives? We get to know God more and more and more through Jesus Christ. So reading our Bibles isn't just a time of study, which study is important, but it's not just getting in there and getting the information. No, when we read our Bibles, when we pray to God, what are we doing? We're taking a bite of eternity. We're taking a swig of our salvation. And so spending time in the Word of God, spending time praying to God, talking to God, it is jumping head first into this abundant joy that has always existed and will always exist between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You see, our participation in that is the eternal life that we are promised. And so we've got to live like this is true, church. You see, Bible reading and prayer is not something we fit into our lives. It's not something we we shift our lives around to get in there. No, the reading and praying and knowing God more is the very source of our life. It's the source. It's the fountain. It's the foundation. And for those of you that do not consider yourselves Christians, it's important to understand this. Jesus Christ is not his first and last name. Now, Jesus is his given name at birth. It means the one who will save his people from their sins. Christ means anointed one. And so the, 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 the title Jesus Christ means anointed Savior, the one who will save us from our sins, but he's the only one. He's anointed. Jesus, this is the ramification of this idea that, that true vitality, eternal life, eternal fulfillment, coming from knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ, that means our only hope, the only way to have real, true life that we live and experience is to know Jesus Christ. In this time, I think it's easy to to make this point. The things that we look to for vitality, that word vitality, the things we look to to live our lives to the fullest have been taken away. We can't travel. We can't make new relationships. We can't even go out and eat or enjoy ourselves or or take pictures of our food and post it on Facebook or something or Instagram. No, we, we are, those things have been taken away. But when we have Jesus Christ. We have a relationship with God the Father, and those things can never be taken away from us. They are guarded by the hand of God, which nothing can be ripped out of. So how do we experience that? What do we have to do to have that? All you need to do, this is the good news, all you need to do is to respond in faith. Believe it. Well, believe what? Believe that the work that God the Father sent, Christ the Son, to do has been accomplished. Look with me at verse 4. Look with me at verse 4. In the past tense, I glorified you on earth, Jesus says to God as he prays, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Past tense. You see, God the Father saves his people through Jesus Christ, the Son. And so God, this word glorified here means to give honor or esteem. So Jesus is saying in his prayer, I have brought you esteem and honor. That was the primary mission of Jesus, not to come get us necessarily. That's a side benefit. We'll talk about it in a moment. But the, the primary job of Jesus was to bring renown to God the Father. And he's saying, I've accomplished that. But, but what brings God glory? That's the question we have to ask. It's one thing to know that Jesus brought glory. 
but what brings God glory? And again, we go back to this idea that God's primary identity is the eternal father, right? He is the father. And so what brings a father glory? The gathering in the salvation of his children. You see, as Jesus is praying this prayer, it's a potent picture. As Jesus prays, what's happened? The the bag of silver has been put in Judas' hands. Those who would capture Jesus to deliver him to Pilate to his death are gathering their soldiers in this moment. They're looking for him. And so the final steps of God's plan to save his children out of this world are in play. As Jesus prays, I have accomplished the mission. I have brought you glory. And so God the Father is putting in the final steps of his plan in motion, the sacrifice of the Son to save the whole of his children. And that's where we have to understand God does not ask us to meet him halfway. He didn't say, listen, I'm going to send my son. He's going to teach you a bunch of things, and you've got to learn those things. And if you learn those things, then I'll save you. No, what does he do? Rather than requiring a payment for our sins, rather than requiring us to meet him halfway and be better people, no, what does he do? He sends his son. God the Father sent the son all the way to us. Jesus accomplished all of it. Jesus did all of what we were required to do to be saved. He did it for us. Why? To gather in his children. That's why he did it. Through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so God, with that primary identity as father, he did that because of who he is as father. He he was compelled to save his children because of his fatherliness so he does not wait for you. He did not wait for you. It says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so what do I have to believe? And you have to believe in the fact that God has done that for you as his child. That's it. If you believe that that the things we just talked about, that Jesus came to accomplish all the way the mission of saving God's children and gathering them in, our faith in that action on our behalf is what gathers us in. So to believe this is true and to place your trust in the earned salvation by Jesus Christ on your behalf, if you do that, you'll be gathered in. Gathered into what? Why should that be exciting to me? Let's look at verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So remember last week, our friend Josh talked about the temptation of Jesus Christ. What was the temptation of Christ? What did he want? He wanted the will of the Father. What was the will of the Father? That Jesus would come, do his will, that he would rule and save and be lifted back up and brought back into that Trinitarian love that he had known, that connection that he had known from eternity. That was his desire. And the temptations that Satan brought to him were based in that fact, knowing that Jesus longed to be back with his Father in eternity. So here, In verse 5, Jesus is reveling in that moment. He is excited. He knows the path he must follow. It's a terrible path. It's a a hurtful path. It's a painful path. But what does he know is on the other end? That he will be back with God in his presence as they had had before the world existed. There's joy in this prayer. Jesus is, is rejoicing that he's going back to the Father. But listen, he's not going alone. 
we look at verses 6 through 11, if you have your Bibles open, follow along with me. Listen to what happens. What does Jesus say in this prayer? He says there, starting in verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you, have, uh, whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in the truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Listen to this. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Do you hear this? There's a lot of words there, but here's what's happening. Jesus is uh, kind of overflowing with joy that he's coming back to the Father, but that joy, imagine it, it swings back around, and it scoops us up with it. We are wrapped up in this returning to the Father. Jesus is excited. That's that's an understatement to be going back to the glory that he knew before. He's he's excited. He's exuberant, right? He's rejoicing. But he's excited. He's stoked not just to be going home. He's stoked to be going home to God the Father with his newly won brothers and sisters. He's not going home alone. He's bringing God's children with him. He has glorified the Father by bringing this message and accomplishing their salvation. And so part of this glorified rejoicing of Jesus is he's returning to the Father as they are one, but we are with him, church. That is the prayer of our Savior Jesus Christ at the end of his life. What? That we, that his children, God's children, would know God as Father. As Father. You see how we can look at God as a ruler or creator and feel the weight of his awesomeness. But as we look at God as primarily a father, what happens? We can rejoice with Christ that we have been invited, gathered into, uh, to experience the joy, the love of the Trinity that they have known for eternity, before the world ever existed. We are invited and gathered into that. Why? Because God is Father. And so as we embrace this primary identity, we'll rejoice just like Christ does. We are one with Christ. Because we are one with Christ, we are one with God. It's incredible. And so as we understand God as Father, as we understand that that's His primary identity, we'll be swept up in the glory of God, the three in one. And the more we know about him, and the more we know him, the more we know about Christ, the more we know Christ, the more that relationship deepens. What's going to happen? The more life we'll experience now and forever. Let's pray to God our Father in closing. Lord, above all, I pray that as we look at you and think about you in this context, that we would not look at you as one who is similar to or represented by our earthly father. All of our earthly fathers have failed in one way or another. I fail daily with my own children. I pray that we could look past that, that we could understand that that you are the model, you are the foundation of what 
fatherliness is. That is who you are. Your identity is not in your creation or how this world is run. Your identity is in the fact that you from eternity have loved as a father, have ruled as a father, have created as a father, a perfect father in the Trinity. And we are being invited into that. I pray that from this point on, those of us who look at you in a sterile manner, that we would look at you as our father, that the intimacy that comes from that, the joy that comes from that would be uh, uh, developed in our lives. Our faith would deepen to the place where we know you love us, you discipline us, you lead us, you rule us as a father does in perfect love and perfect wisdom. I pray, Lord, for our congregation. I pray for this world as we are in a time of upheaval, that we would maintain the course, that we would not just simply try to fit you into our lives, but we would look to you as the source of our life. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.